to welcome everyone back to the Duck Pond Wall, a show here on WEHC where we get to talk with an Emory and Henry graduate and find out what's going on. I'm your host, Monica Hoyle. I'm the alumni director here at the college, and this is an honor for me to get to talk to, to graduates. And today, I am especially honored to talk with musician and professor and author, Will Gibbons, Dr. Will Gibbons, Emory and Henry class of 2003. How you doing, Will? Great, Monica. Thanks so much. It's such a pleasure to be here with you today. Well, I'm just excited because you're one of those, I shouldn't say kid anymore, Dr. Gibbons. Okay, you're one of those young people we have enjoyed watching along the way, and you've got some cool projects out that we want to talk about. It involves really highbrow art and music, but also video games. But let's talk just for a minute about where you are and, and what you're teaching. You're, you're at Potsdam University, right? Yeah. Well, so I'm at SUNY Potsdam. So that's the State University of New York, Potsdam. And if you uh, if you get on a map, you'll find Potsdam way up at the top. Uh, so if I'm flying into the closest airport, it's Montreal, uh, Canada. So it's about 20 minutes, 30 minutes to the border from here. So uh, yeah, it's way up there. Do you go to it's Canada a winter much? wonderland. Oh my gosh! Yes, all the time, Monica. I, in fact, I'll, I'll go up for lunch or dinner sometimes. How uh, it's fun! Great. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I never thought about you being that close to Canada. Yeah, it's a real treat. It's actually pretty great. I get to practice my uh, my French that I learned at Emory and Henry. So it's oh, great. for goodness, you get to, well. That's pretty impressive. I'm glad that I do not have to depend on my French to get lunch because I would be in so much trouble. <laughs> it would just be baguettes for me all the time. Oh, that's all I do anyway. Yeah. <laughs> So, how long have you been at, at SUNY Potsdam? This is my third year here as as dean of the Crane School, and before that, I was in Texas for ten years. So, changing oh. up one one country for another, almost. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Texas, big as a country for sure. Right. So, you were there for ten years. At, at was it? Um, and you were the dean of the music school there. Yeah, I was. Uh, uh, I started off as a music history professor at uh, at TCU in in Fort Worth. Um, and then I, I got into administration. I was associate dean there for five years of the of the College of Fine Arts, so music, theater, dance, design, art, fashion. Uh, so yeah, that was great, great, great times. And then I uh, an opening happened up here, way up in the in the north, and I, I couldn't pass on it, so went for it. Well, was it was it a hard decision? To, that is a big. I mean, that is literally the other end of the other side of the country. I mean, was it a big decision to make that move? Yeah, it was. You know, I was pretty comfortable in Texas, so it was a big one of those big life decisions. But I'm glad I did it. I was not glad about halfway through the uh, you know 27 hour drive with two cats in the car, and you know that <laughs> I was like, no, this is a horrible idea. But now I'm I'm pretty glad. Yeah, you have been a writing fool, and I'm going to say fool because I know it's a lot of work to write a book. But you have out, all right, you have out two books plus additional co-editing jobs. Tell us about some of the books that you have out right now so we can talk about them. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I started off um, as a music historian. I started off studying opera, uh, nothing to do with with video games, uh, which is where I mostly am now. But uh, so my first book is about opera in early 20th century France. And it's um, about sort of how we got from a culture of uh, pushing for new music all the time, which is what opera houses used to do. They wanted the latest, greatest stuff to sort of what we have now, which is kind of this almost museum repertoire where we tend to do the same stuff over and over again. And so, you know, I still keep my toe in that. Just had something come out related to that uh, earlier this year. 
Um, but mostly now I work in media. And it seems like a totally radically different thing. But, but um, what I got really interested in was how music becomes sort of what we call classical music and, and what that even means. And so that pivoted for me over to thinking about classical music in video games, which is um, uh, it's, it's something I've always done kind of as a consumer. Uh, I used to uh, I used to settle uh, debates with my uh, college roommate, uh, Bobby. We used to play video games to answer all our uh, all our uh, debates. And I say debates really generously, you know, so it's not, it doesn't sound like arguments. Were but, these yeah. fights, were these actual fights that whoever won the video game got to win? No, that's exactly right. Yeah. It's, and I recommend it as a problem solving measure. You know, if I could do that in my, my job now, I probably would still do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I eventually I thought, wow, a lot of really interesting stuff's going on in video game music. I kind of pivoted into that. People seemed interested in it. And, you know, I've been running with that. So I, uh, my next book that was just me um, is called Unlimited Replays um, with Oxford University Press. And it's about classical music in video games and the relationship between those things like concerts of uh, video game music that we see a lot now or just how the ideas of, of classical music and, and video games kind of intersect. And then I've got a few other books that have come out, like you said, that are edited collections. That's what I do a lot of these days where it's you know bringing together a bunch of different authors um, to write on these topics. So I've got one on music and role-playing games, one on music and video games generally, and I got a couple of forthcoming ones. The big one there is um, the Oxford Handbook of Video Game Music and Sound coming out later this year. It's going to be this big old like thousand page volume that I hope will be a great um, starting point and resource for people. Also really good as a doorstop or for killing any insects you need to get rid of. Well, now that's funny. Once you put Oxford in front of something, you know it's going to be a big thick book. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it, it, and it sounds fancy too. I feel like it's, yeah, it does. You know, just gives that little gravitas to it. So yep. Well, so how will so that will be like an index of just all the different pieces of music used in video games? No, so it's about um, I think it's about fifty chapters. I'd have to go look at the whole table of contents again, but fifty different chapters from kind of leading scholars of media and video game music writing about a whole bunch of different stuff. Um, and my hope is that it'll be sort of a great starting point for anybody, any students or any um, uh, researchers who are looking for a good place to get going on studying music and video games. And people who already do, I think it'll be a good resource. So it's been a labor of love. And it was it started off as my sort of COVID project uh, with a co-editor in uh, uh, Copenhagen in Denmark. And then uh, it's sort of uh, gone on and on and on. And now it'll be finally coming out. It feels like an end of an era almost. Well, it's funny. I have I've been to a lot of book readings recently that begin with, "Well, I got my book finished during the pandemic," and so I, <laughs> I feel like we need more. You know, I don't I don't want to have another pandemic, but I feel like we need something to allow us to focus like that to really get some of these bo- these great books written. Yeah, if we could just do the occasional lockdown without the whole pandemic part yeah. of it, that would be that would be great for me. Yep. <laughs> I'm fascinated by all of this, so I'm going to sort of unpack some of the things that I'm most sort of fascinated with. For one, the music that is in video games, and this is I'm going to have to show my ignorance about video games because frankly, except for Ms. Pac-Man, which frankly, I'm pretty doggone good at, except for that, I don't really video game. So I'm going to approach this from pure ignorance but is most of the the video game music written for the game or do they use current uh, already existing music yes and yes oh. I, I would say there's there's a lot of music that's written for games um, there's a ton of composers out there who are writing really fantastic innovative music for games um, but you also see um, 
what we call licensing, right? You know, licensed music in games. So I think about um, like the Grand Theft Auto games that are, are still so popular. Um, those license so much hours and hours and hours and hours of popular music that's so important to the game. Um, and you know, what I've, what I've talked about a lot is the amount of classical music that happens in games. Uh, so, which is a lot, it started off being, um, you know, sort of a cost savings measure. You didn't have to pay a composer if you use music that was already done. Um, and now it's really, you know, people use it to set, set the mood or tell us something about the character or tell us something about a time period or, you know, any number of reasons. So you see a combination. Here's my understatement for the day. There's a lot of money in, in video games now. And every time I hear about production and everything from the design of the game to the music to the dialogue, and, and just recently, just yesterday, I heard they're taking some game and making it into a movie, I think, right now. And so there's a lot of money in all that. The investment in, in a person to create some music for a video game can pay off, I guess, even though it's an expensive investment. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I still think myself, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a child of the 80s, and I think a lot about how video games were made then, and it was these sort of small teams of people, or maybe it was an individual person just kind of working away in a basement. And there is some of that still. You still see these kind of solo developers, uh, and I really find that that fascinating. But a lot of times you talk about these big releases, and they're they're much more expensive than movies sometimes. The industry as a whole, is brings in a lot more money than than film or television does. Interesting. Um, so, so it's a it's this huge industry, and it's you know if you watch the credits of the latest kind of major studio game, it, it's just I mean it takes fifteen minutes to get through the credits, and everybody will you know. Uh, you know, you, you get to the third music assistant or something like that. It's these huge music teams and sound teams that are working on it. So really kind of fascinating stuff. Wow. You said something when we got started that I'm, I'm going to circle back to. You said um, that part of your part of your goal was to figure out what actually makes classical music. Did you say that or did I make that up? Like, no, that that is a big thing for me is sort of figuring figuring out what that means. It's a it's a term I think we throw around a lot. Uh, and I'm not sure we always have a, a clear meaning behind it. You know, um, you think about people in tuxedos or fancy clothes going to a concert hall, or you think about people in powdered wigs, or you know, what what is it that makes something classical and something not classical? Uh, and that's a big a big theme of of one of the books, Unlimited Replays, is is sort of me kind of working through. It's almost like therapy. Uh, it's kind of me working through these big philosophical questions for myself of, of what does that even mean when we say we study classical music or something like that. Well, what, so did you come to some conclusions? Are there certain elements that have to be there for it to be considered really classical music? Well, I, I got to say, it, my my conclusion was it doesn't mean anything. The term really doesn't mean anything. Uh, it, it's this this jumble of a whole bunch of different musics over more than a thousand years that, that sometimes have nothing in common with one another. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a, it's a convenient term to use when we say, you know, I study classical music in school or something like that. It's sort of convenient to use, but if you really pin it down, it, it doesn't mean a lot. It could, it could mean anything. So you have to ask some follow-up questions or try to figure it out and, and, and go from there. But yeah, it, it, and I, I think it can be a dangerous term sometimes um, to give extra kind of gravitas. We were talking about Oxford earlier, and it's yeah. a little bit like that, right? You know, I do classical music. Well, it makes it seem better, right? It makes it seem, and that, that's the thing we have to be careful of is the uh, is is not making it seem like it's a more valuable kind of music than any other kind of music. Well, you just said an interesting thing there about um, classical music over the last thousand years. One of the NPR stories I heard yesterday was about 
um, making a list of the best new classical music, which almost seems, you know, counterintuitive that there's new classical music, but of course there is. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think about this New Yorker cartoon I saw uh, a long time ago, and it was just, uh, you know, there's these two people chatting at a, a party, and, and someone says, what do you mean you're a living composer? And, uh, you know... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, some of my favorite, uh, some of my favorite music has been written in the last, you know, ten years, and there's there's a really um, thriving scene. And sometimes the uh, the composers don't like the term classical music; they do new music or art music or concert music or you know, there's lots of different terms. But yeah, it's it's a it makes it seem like it all happened 250 years ago. So at least, yep. yeah, at least, yeah. I want to remind everyone we're speaking today with Dr. Will Gibbons from SUNY Potsdam. Uh, university. Um, well, say it again. It's SUNY. I'm looking at your logo. It's Potsdam State University of New York. How does that work? All these are the same thing. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it was Potsdam College, uh, and but it was one of the original schools when when a bunch of different state universities oh. formed the State University of New York system back in the in the mid century. So. Um, so you, you hear people call it Potsdam State, you hear people call it Potsdam, you hear people call it SUNY Potsdam, it, it goes for anything, right? I just want to know, if you stub your toe, do you yell Potsdam? I want to know that. A Potsdam? Yeah, yeah. well, I am now. Yeah. Now I will. Okay, good. Yeah. Good to know. Thanks for that, Monica. I appreciate sure. that. Sure. Well, we're talking in particular about your, your book about uh, music and video games, and I, I want to know this, do you have any insights as to whether... This is sort of a cool exposure for young people to a type of music that they may not otherwise listen to. Oh, absolutely. And I I think it's the same for me of, uh, you know, cartoon like Bugs Bunny cartoons were for for previous generations. And you you go to concerts sometimes. And one of my favorite things is to to go out to a symphony concert and you're you're listening and you you hear them play something that's in one of the uh, uh, old Bugs Bunny cartoons or something. And all these people will sort of like look up, you know, they, they wake up and they sort of turn their heads around and they're like, I know this one, yeah. right? You know, and uh, I think it's that way for video games now for a lot of people where they think, oh, wow, that's the, that music that was in this. Or there's a lot of statistics now that say uh, Gen Z listens to a lot more, I'm going to use the word again, classical, uh, listens to a lot more classical music than uh, Gen X or millennials do. But a lot of that has to do with what we call classical music. So now we're looping in a lot of times film scores, video game scores, things like that. And and there are a lot of uh, Gen Z folks who um, will put on, you know, a, a Spotify playlist of film music and, and just keep it on for five, six hours a day uh, in the background while they're studying or while they're just doing other things. And, you know, um, that's interesting. That be, I never thought about that. I know, that. exactly. It sort of creates a background music to your life. And, and, uh, so, you know, if we call that classical music, which I, I, I guess I would, th- that consumption is just off the charts. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's hugely impactful. And, and I think, um, you know, certain musical themes from video games, if we think about like the music from Mario Brothers or Zelda or those games like that, I mean, that probably has more, um, sort of aural recognition than almost anything we could think of, than, than, you know, Beethoven Fifth Symphony or something like that, you know. Uh, it's probably the same level of recognizing from just a couple of notes. Right. Yeah, I teased you about the fact that I was just going to have on Tetris in the background while we were talking about this. But, you know, that those kinds of theme songs feel pretty 
tinny and and repetitive based on some of what you're talking about though, right? Oh yeah. I mean, you still do see some of that. I mean, you know, when you talk about the the eighties you know, they were working with really, really limited um, technology at the time, which is kind of amazing that they were able to do what they did. But yeah, I mean, one of the big strategies back then was looping the music, right? You know, it saved memory to just play the same 30 seconds over and over and over again. Um, and so I've done the math. And, you know, if you're playing Tetris or something like that, you, you maybe listen to this this chunk of music, uh, you know, thousands of times over the course of, of whatever, which is imagine listening to the same, you know, Taylor Swift song for 3000 times, uh, which I mean, many people listening to this have probably done. Nothing, I've probably done nothing, nothing against uh, the Swifties. Yeah. We're good. We don't know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you just think about that in terms of the consumption and how much that just lodges the music in your brain somewhere, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. So the stuff that we're talking about now, though, we're talking about people you, they've hired real like composers and orchestras and all that. And it's like the real deal. Oh yeah. It's all over the place, right? You still do have people that are writing that kind of 80s style, 8-bit thing. And it's a whole aesthetic now. So I think it's really cool actually that that's still happening. But then, yeah, on the other end of the spectrum, you have people renting out entire orchestras um, or, um, uh, you know, you have people writing rock uh, scores for games that are using, you know, a live, uh, whatever that means, rock band the whole time or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's all over the place. Anything you can imagine, you can sort of do it. Yeah. That is pretty funny. I'm actually kind of relieved about this conversation because we literally, within the last week, had a conversation about the fact that now that Bugs Bunny is gone, where do kids learn, where, where do they learn classical music? Because that is honestly that was my exposure. That was exposure for a whole lot of us who grew up in the 60s and 70s was was Bugs Bunny. And so I'm kind of excited to know that they've got this outlet. Oh, yeah. And you go to, you know, YouTube videos. Of, you know, you can find anything on YouTube. And I'll, I'll look up a particular piece of music that is in a game if I'm trying to figure some detail out or what recording they used or something like that. And if you look at the comments, which, you know, normally I don't do, but in this case, I will do it. You know, so many people will say like this, if you were brought here by playing this game or, or, uh, you know, I love this part of this game. It's the thing that I think about all the time. And it, it really is sort of heartwarming to see that. That's interesting. Well, and does it make a difference the type of game that it is? Because I I've really been listening to a lot of NPR lately. So the other day there was a whole thing on 1A about the cozy games where they're, you know, you're not shooting anybody. You're just, you know, you're building a farm or something. And do you think it matters about a, a person's association with those kinds of music based on what kind of game it is? Yeah, absolutely. I do. Um, I think about, you know, when you're playing those really intense action oriented, let's say shooter games, right? Um, I think you're, the music is almost never going to be really present there because your focus has to be on something else and it would be distracting. But yeah, you think about those cozy games. And I love me a good cozy game. You, you think about that and, you know, you, it's, it doesn't really require 100% of your brain power to do it, which is great, right? That's exactly what you want. It's just cozy. You can kind of zone out. It's like watching reruns of your favorite 90s show or something. And yeah, then the music comes a little bit forward. You notice it a little bit more. It can be, It's part of the coziness is that sort of uh, musical experience. So yeah, I think about that a lot. And games that you're going to spend a lot, a lot, a lot of time in. You know, I play a lot of uh, role-playing games myself, this sort of like strategy, big big fantasy or sci-fi narratives, this kind of thing. I'm a, I'm a giant nerd. And uh, yeah, I think about 
<laughs> how much of the 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 atmosphere is created by listening to the music or and the way that it it works um and you have lots of downtime in those games where you're just running around doing little fetch quests or something where you're just going from one part of town to the other part of town and and those are times where the music can really come to the front because you're not having to think about everything else uh, as as much so yeah absolutely the type of game matters a lot all right i'm gonna ask a really dumb question but like are there games where you get like get to pick your own theme music? Because I've always thought how fun it would be like you walk into a room and like your theme music comes on. Yeah, I mean, there definitely are games where you can choose which music is playing. And I, I will do that every time. And I will spend a, a lot of time on that, uh, you know, making sure that I get it right to the, the mood that I want, you know, change this up, do this. Um, and there are some games I can think of exactly where you... Um, you can choose a specific sort of instrument to be associated with your character. Um, and you like, I would change it like five times in the course of the game. Cause I'm like, no, it doesn't really feel, I'm not really a violin person right now. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm more a, a cello or a flute person in this. So yeah. That's interesting. I'll, I'll... So you can really, you can sort of cater it to what your preferences are. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. I've got, I've really got to get out of the house more. I, I just did not know that. <laughs> That is wicked cool. <laughs> Do you feel like there's there's maybe a resurgence in appreciation for music that has more violins than, you know, electric guitar, say? Oh, absolutely. I remember, you know, one of my favorite stories is I went when I was a graduate student in, in North Carolina. I uh, went to this outdoor concert in the summer and uh, this is beautiful, you know, amphitheater. And I'd gone, I went to a lot of concerts there. Um, and usually if it started to rain, Everybody kind of picks up your picnic basket and goes under the pavilion. And then one time they were playing a, a video game concert. So I went to it. I was really excited about it. And uh, somewhat different audience than they usually got at this thing. But it started pouring. Like the sky just opened up. It's just like absolutely pouring down. And most people did the normal thing where they grab everything and they go under the pavilion and just do that. And there's this large group of like diehard, like teenage 20-somethings who are just standing in the pouring rain in front of the stage, like watching this orchestra play a play a concert. And I was like, these people love this music. It's it's approaching them, it's touching them in a different way, maybe, uh, than what they would normally hear at this series. And I see these kinds of things happen over and over and over again. You know, lots of orchestras are doing sellout concerts of video game music. I mean, I mean, all the time. And in wow. fact, uh, you're seeing film concerts and video game concerts are paying the bills for a mm -hmm. lot of major orchestras um, when maybe they're not selling so many tickets to um, this sort of traditional classical repertoire. So, yeah, absolutely. It's making a, a, a profound difference, uh, I think. And, and it is enhancing what people are exposed to in terms of that kind of orchestral sound. Yeah. Well, I heard an interview with an with an. Um a conductor one day and she was saying that part of the problem right now with with orchestras and getting the public to come is that it's just so different from you know what you do any other place that you go you know you can't talk you can't be on your phone you can't you know you can't do all those things and she was saying that you know we've got to figure out how to sort of put a little youth back into what we're doing or we're going to lose everybody so this sounds like the kind of thing that she might have been talking about absolutely 100 percent. yeah i mean there's no reason going to a concert can't be fun um, and I, I'm one of those people that I actually don't, I don't find it super fun to go sit in a, you know, awkward space for two and a half hours and worry that I'm going to cough at the wrong time or, uh, you know, listening to the person next to me agonize about trying to unwrap their candy oh for 15 gosh. minutes or whatever. Yeah, right. The candies. And, and, ex 
<laughs> right. And, and I think, you know, we just have to change that mindset. Uh, and I remember when, even when I got here just a few years ago, we were playing some, uh, uh, you know, the little things that play before concerts, yeah. uh, the little like voiceover thing. And it, and it said, you know, please take out your phone and turn off your phone and, you know, don't look at it. And I thought, come on, this is ridiculous. So we've actually switched to digital programs and we're sort of encouraging people to engage with the um, with the concerts in a little bit of a different way, which is, you know, people feel mixed about it. Some people really feel like it's a space where they want to totally unplug mm-hmm. and and just sit there and appreciate the music. But some people really want to feel like it's a more interactive experience for them. And and I think we got to find a way to uh, to cater to that. Yeah. Well, if you, you know, if you could go to a concert and like take pictures and put it up on Instagram and, you know, and, you know, sort of share with your friends what a good time you're having as opposed to, oh my, like you're saying, oh my gosh, I was stuck in there for two hours and I couldn't open my Werther's, you know, then maybe it would catch (laughs) on as something that was a little more fun to do. Exactly. And I think that is a a huge crisis facing this sort of, let's say, classical music industry right now is, is figuring out how to... Uh, engage with audiences in that in that kind of way. We're we're living in a world where people want interactive experiences, uh, and that both parts of that, right? You know, they want it to be something that they feel like they're engaging with, whether that's posting, yeah, like you said, posting something on Instagram, or um, that they're able to participate in in some way. And there's a lot of apps that sort of let you follow along, or or even um, sort of virtually perform in some way. People don't want to leave the house for something that's not an experience, sort of capital E, right? And I'm the same way, right? You know, I I would. Once I'm home, it's the end of a long day, I'm, you know, in my pajamas, I'm in front of the fireplace, I don't necessarily want to leave again, uh, unless it's something that's like, okay, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity, I really got to make sure I hear this. Yeah. So it's it's a real pivotal moment. And, and for me, I, I think video game music can be a part of that. All right. So if we want to experience some video music, you're, can we go to Spotify and do a like a video game playlist? Is that possible? Oh, yeah. There's a bunch of them on there and they're really good and, and yeah so i would just get on whatever your favorite streaming service is and kind of poke around it's fantastic or if, even just youtube i mean you know you can find videos of 10 hours of the best video game music and it's it's pretty it's pretty great stuff that is awesome i also love that you said poke around because it made me think of pokemon <laughs> <laughs> what, what exactly are you teaching up there what classes are you teaching because i'm thinking what a fun professor you would be that you know all these cool things Oh, thanks. No, I actually used to teach video game classes. So I'm I'm the dean of the school right now. So I don't actually teach, which is kind of sad. And I would like to get back in the in the classroom a little bit. Now. And I think once once I've got my feet under me a little bit more, I want to start to teaching a bit. But uh, yeah, I used to teach um, music history, all kinds of music history. And I used to teach uh, at TCU in the arts leadership and entrepreneurship program. So I taught a lot about managing nonprofits and that kind of thing. So you were like a renaissance man. Oh, you're you're uh, you're very kind, Monica. Thanks. I learned all of my skills at Emory and Henry. What did, were you a music major? Yeah. Yep. That's right. I was a uh, uh, mostly piano was my instrument. Yeah. What had you planned to do initially? Is are you doing exactly what you had in mind to do? Oh my gosh, no. Uh, I I briefly I I went to Emory thinking I was going to be a, a choir teacher. Um, that's what I wanted to do. And I was a middle school choir teacher for like one year after I graduated. And it was um, it was a really it was a great experience. And it taught me that that is not at all what I wanted to do. And I remember um, I I sort of learned about musicology when I was a student there, music history. And so I thought, okay, maybe I want to go to graduate school for this. Um, So I I, I got some help from from folks around and and got into school and, and 
I was like, I'm going to be a, a, a musicologist. And I did that and, and uh, started off as a music history professor. But then about three or four years into being a professor, I sort of got bit by the, the administrative bug, um, which is there should be some sort of vaccine. But, um, <laughs> and I, so I started I think off. The, doing, I think the vaccine is being dean for several years. That right, yeah, that's right. I think you're right. Yeah, it's a, it's a gradual inoculation. But yeah, so I, I just got more and more into thinking about, you know, how we can, we can make things better for students, for faculty, for everybody through better policies or better structures or, or better ways of thinking about things. And so I, I, uh, I, I go where I feel like I'm the most useful usually. And so that's, that's the direction it's gone. What from your student days seems to kind of, I don't know, either impact you still today or, or maybe instruct you a little bit today? Oh my gosh, so many things. I think about Emory Henry, honestly, all the time. I'm not even just saying that because I'm on this amazing podcast, but uh, as you were just kind of saying, my career has been a lot of of pivots, right? You know, it's been sort of like, I'm doing this and I'm going to adjust to this, or I have to learn this whole new skill set. Oh, now all of a sudden I'm in charge of the arts management program. So I need to learn how to do this and I'll, you know, continue to get education. But but I think uh, most of what I learned at Emory & Henry is about how to learn um, and, and being able to, to take on these new challenges and sort of teach myself um, and sort of never be content with focusing on one particular thing. And I always think that Emory was the, it was the perfect place for me um, for that because it let me explore so many different interests and take so many courses I maybe wouldn't have done if I'd gone to a more, um, uh, let me say, focused, uh, like all music all the time type school. And honestly, where I am right now, SUNY Potsdam, it's a big school of music here. We got about 500 students in the, in the school of music at Crane and we, we train about 50% of all the public school music teachers in New York State, which is amazing. Wow. Love it. But the university itself is, is um, just a little over 2,000 students. So, um, you know, it, it sort of has that rural Emory and Henry feel to it. And I bring a lot of just my experience in, in Emory to the job here. Dr. Will Gibbons, I want to thank you for being our guest today and helping us understand this interesting and fascinating world of classical music and video games. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, and we want to thank everybody for being with us today on WEHCFM 90.7, WISEFM Wise 90.5. Please keep listening because this is the voice of Southwest Virginia.